Speaking of traffic... This is a story about no traffic. A part of Granville Street in downtown Vancouver going car-free for things like art installations, music, a pedestrian promenade. How did things go? We're going to check in now with Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Jill. Happy BC Day. Happy BC Day to you uh, as well. Uh, talk a little bit about what was happening on this stretch or what is happening on Granville Street and how that all came about. It was amazing. I was down there yesterday afternoon and it was a beautiful sunny afternoon and you all you saw was smiles on people's faces and life and energy kind of coming back downtown. Um, and what it is is a... Um, closure so it's a pedestrian you know friendly uh, people friendly zone um, between Smythe and Helmican for two blocks and it's got two stages um, where there's throughout the afternoons on Saturdays and Sundays and the weekends um, through to Labor Day there's local music, musicians performing there's two busker stages um, there was a woman down there um, an artist who was painting live and creating a, just a beautiful piece of art uh, lots of people getting selfies um, with a huge life-size you know, big heart next to a um, BAN short for Vancouver, but just smiles and, and people just getting out and enjoying public space all around. I know when this idea was first brought about, one of the concerns or a couple of the concerns were transit, making sure people could still get to where they're going on transit and things like deliveries to businesses. How were those issues dealt with? Well, TransLink really stepped up as one of the partners. Um, this was uh, me working with TransLink and the downtown Vancouver BIA. Um, and so the buses are being rerouted on the weekends to see more and how. Um, and there's history of doing that. Um, that's happened typically on, you know, Friday and Saturday nights for the um, nightlife. Uh, so there's precedent set there that's happened before. Um, and then the deliveries are happening in the back lane. So um, all of that was addressed. And it's just so great to see space in the city that's just really people first. I think we also heard from the newly, uh, pr- the person who's now in the place uh, of Charles Gauthier, the CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, Nolan Marshall, saying that this really was a great opportunity. It really demonstrates what Granville Street can become. Uh, have you been working with the Downtown Vancouver BIA with this as well? Yeah, very closely. So when, you know, the idea came up and, you know, as you know, I was sort of behind pushing for the temporary expedited restaurant patios. Um, which is really, um, I think, making us rethink in a positive way about how we use our public space um, and then the pop-up plazas that you see in different neighbourhoods across the city. And then when this idea came up for Granville Promenade, I worked um, from the beginning, um, from the get-go with the DBBIA. Um, and I think we both saw the potential of what it could be. Um, it's what I call the silver lining to the COVID cloud, that we're getting more bold, I guess is a great way to put it, about how we use our public space. And I hope that that's here to stay. Do you anticipate other streets perhaps following suit or is this something specific and more on point with that particular stretch of Granville Street? Well, I think Granville Street really lends itself well to it um, because it's not typically um, sort of it it has buses and so certainly it's used for transit, um, but it's not a car thoroughfare in the same way. You see a lot of traffic on how and that. So um, I just think the makeup of the street and the fact it's got its history and legacy as the entertainment district is really well suited to it. Um, but definitely there's other areas that you could consider, such as Water Street in Gastown. Um, could be great to have closures in the summertime. You see a lot of cities that will do summer closures in certain areas. And then on a smaller scale, it's just those sort of local neighborhood pop-ups where, you know, off a major shopping district like in the Canby Village um, or South Granville, um, well, there's one off of Fraser Street, and you see these blocks that have um, been shut off, picnic tables have popped up, 
neighbors and locals kind of come together and hang out and, you know, have a drink or chat and get together. And it's, it's just nice to see that life and connection happening in our communities. Uh, did you get any pushback? Uh, just I know we've talked about that that area before. I know some a lot of the businesses were dealing, especially during the pandemic when it was so quiet. Uh, they were dealing with increased garbage. They were dealing with, uh, in some cases, uh, people using their doorways and the streets as a public toilet. It, it, did you get any pushback at all uh, that this isn't the right way to go, or is this being really more received as helping with some of those issues? I think it's been more received as helping with the issues. I think people have been nervous about a lot of the social impacts that we're seeing from um, some of the key issues like homelessness and that in the city. Um, but it's a positive thing to have, um, you know, more life and more energy and people on the street. There's people of sort of all ages and walks of life that were down there yesterday. I think that's one of the nicest things to see. But it does bring life and, and business back. And those local businesses and stores were really hard hit. And we saw the highest number of closures um, during COVID in downtown and specifically Granville Street being, I think, one of the two hardest hits. Um, so I think it, it's a good thing for everybody to kind of bring that life and energy back. Uh, and it, it certainly is. I mean, the weather as well. Do you think that this is something that could be, uh, if there's one thing I think Vancouverites, when you talked about the patios, I think Vancouverites have proven, even when it's raining, a lot of people can figure out a way to make that patio work for them. So is this something that we could see, do you think, maybe uh, on a year-round kind of basis? Yeah, I don't think that you would necessarily see it at 365 or year-round, but I think you could see pop-ups, um, you know, for sort of around the you know seasonal, around the holiday period, um, leading up to Christmas could work really well, um, my background, I used to work at Tours in Vancouver, and, you know, we used to call sort of the fall winter season Vancouver's entertainment season um, because everybody said, well, it's the off season and, you know, tourism's busiest in the summer and when the weather's nice and that's when Vancouver shines. But it's also when all of our arts groups are on stage, right? And it's their live season. And so I think with some imagination and, um, you know, I've seen lots of outdoor winter festivals. I used to live in Montreal, um, Carnival in Quebec, right, where people adapt and you have kind of, you know, warm drinks and um, you know, you celebrate the weather. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to be creative. Do you see the rules relaxing as well as far as what we've seen so far in the pandemic? Uh, like you mentioned, that kind of quick rollout of extended patios, of being able to have an alcoholic beverage in, in some places in public spaces and that. Do you see those rules not only staying, but perhaps more relaxation to make things like this fun and to make things like this more easy, I suppose, to have them happen? I do. I think that First off, it's, it's the importance of flexibility can't be understated. And so, you know, sometimes the city, um, because of, you know, who the city is and it manages risk, tends to really study things. And I think the idea of trying to be flexible and nimble and have pop-ups and things don't have to be perfect, right? They evolve over time and look at how successful our restaurant patios have been with, uh, you know, 400 temporary expedite patios across the summer. Um, so I think that flexibility is key to sort of try and see what works. And I think you have to consider each area in terms of how well it's served by, you know, services, businesses, washrooms, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I think that uh, we're getting to have more of an outdoor culture. Um, and I think that, you know, people do enjoy having a beverage outside. You just need to make sure that it's the right spot. With these, uh, the promenade weekends and with closing it to traffic and encouraging more people to come to that area, what is the impact on policing or is there more policing or does it change enforcement at all to make sure that the people are following the rules? Uh, well, we always consult uh, with any sort of, uh, you know, large type of events or street closures with the VPD and the Vancouver PD. This was this particular gravel promenade. Um, was really envisioned as a family-friendly event, uh, not sort of large, big crowds that are coming at specific times. It's sort of all day Saturday and Sunday from noon to 7, and 
people are sort of, you know, segueing in and out of the site at their own speed and enjoying the music. It's a very chill, kind of fun experience. So um, we always consult with VPD, but uh, it was great to have all the partners on board, VPD, TransLink, and, you know, the downtown BIA who have done all the activation, and I think they've done a great job. All right. And just to clarify for people, if people are hearing this, uh, they, maybe they didn't catch it this weekend, how long is this going to be continuing? So it's happening weekends, so Saturdays and Sundays. Um, this was the first weekend, and it'll go run through the Labor Day weekend on to September the 5th. And we kind of touched on this. Will there be a kind of a looking at it at that point then, of reevaluating or seeing kind of if it morphs or what happens after September 5th? Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Um, that's why we called this one a pilot. Um, that's a great way to get something off the ground and work out the kinks and just see how people respond to it. Based on what I saw yesterday, people were loving it. Um, so if there's good feedback from the local business community and, you know, sort of local residents as well, then it is something I think we could see popping up in, in the summertime moving forward. All right. We will leave it there. Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thanks so much for joining us on this BC Day. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. You should go down and check it out. I highly recommend it. Thanks so much for being with us on this BC Day. We're going to talk a little bit about job interviews. And the reason we're talking about this is we're hearing more and more from career coaches and from recruiters saying the video job interview is here to stay. Even as the economy reopens and things do get back to more person and in-person exchanges, that video job interview is sticking around and there are some important things to know. Uh, I think one of the big things is uh, right from the get-go is that the eye contact. Besides what you say, maintaining that eye contact throughout the interview is so critical because it's almost replaced that virtual handshake. A lot of people don't realize with eye contact is that they start focusing on their own image. So knowing where to actually look on the screen is important. All right, that was Mark Sheckman with the company Robert Half. Right now, we are joined by Janet Candido, HR advisor and founder of Candido Consulting Group. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts on the video interview, the video job interview, and whether or not it's going to be permanent? Well, I agree that it will be permanent. It is, uh, it's a convenient way to interview people. There's no, um, you know, there's no downtime. The, the individual doesn't have to commute to your office. It can be done more quickly. But I don't think you're going to be hiring senior people just on the basis of a virtual interview. So it sounds like it could be important, though, as far as even getting to that second step, which might lead to something more in person. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It will. Uh, in that clip, uh, Mark, or sorry, Mike Sheckman made mention of eye contact, and I think it's one of the difficult things to kind of get used to if you're doing a Zoom call, even if you're just Zoom calling with somebody else, not even a job interview. It's that focusing, making eye contact with the person, keeping your contact with the camera rather than looking at your own image. How important is that during the job interview? Well, I think it's critical. I agree with his comment that the eye contact has... Um, replaced the handshake because you're going to want to see the person, see how much they're paying attention to you. If the eyes are roaming around, then you have to wonder if they're really paying attention or are they paying attention to all sorts of other things happening in the vicinity? How focused are they on on the interview? So the eye contact, I agree, is, is quite critical. 
And what about your dress? Obviously, if it's a Zoom call, you can probably get away with wearing jeans or even wearing shorts if you want. But what about what you're presenting as far as your attire? I believe you should be presenting on Zoom as if you were going on uh, on the interview in person. Because it's part of, of what you do to prepare yourself for the interview. If you're dressed in your, you know, if you're dressed in your pajamas, you're going to come across um, too relaxed, too um, unconcerned, not really focused enough. But if you're dressed as if you were going for an in-person interview, that will come across in your manner and, and your style of speaking. Uh, it's interesting to think about that, that kind of, yeah, the confidence that comes with, with being prepared and looking the part as well. Uh, a friend of mine who does hiring for a company uh, was talking about in the summer, a bit earlier on in the summer, hiring for a position. And she was surprised at how many people, when they showed up for their Zoom interview, would be wearing a T-shirt or would be wearing a sweatshirt or something that was ripped. And for her, it was an automatic, there was very little, if anything, you could do at that point to overcome that and to get a chance at the job. Absolutely. I mean, at the very least, it's showing a total lack of respect for the person who's interviewing you and for the job itself. If you If you can't be bothered to dress appropriately, then, I mean, you've made a statement before you've even opened your mouth. And what about timing when, say, it's a job interview on Zoom? How early should you be showing up to show that you are definitely serious about this and you're reliable? How early should you be showing up to a video job interview? I wouldn't show up any more than uh, a couple of minutes before the uh, the timing because nobody's going to be on there until then. If you were going in person, then, of course, you'd show up, you know, maybe 10 minutes early. But on the video, nobody knows that you're there. So if you show up a couple of minutes before the scheduled time of the call, that should be fine. What other tips would you give people or what kind of issues come up with this different way of doing an interview, doing it via video? I would tell them to practice. I would tell them to to rehearse um, the interview. I mean, to your earlier point about the eye contact and how hard it is and, and people aren't used to doing it. I would do a Zoom call with a colleague or a friend and practice that, practice keeping eye contact. And at the same time, don't you know, don't look too stiff. I right? don't don't stand there like a statue. So I would practice certainly the physical aspects of being on a Zoom interview or any kind of virtual interview. And what about having notes or having things nearby? Is it something not that you would normally bring a lot of that, I would imagine, into a person-to-person, an in-person interview, but is it okay to reference things or to have things around, even if on the Zoom, the person doing the interviewing is going to see that you're breaking eye contact or that you're looking at something? I think it's okay as long as you don't do it through the whole interview and as long as you're not reading something, right? But to, to reference something that you've made notes of, I think is fine. You know, whoever's interviewing you is going to expect you to be a little bit nervous and they're not going to expect you to do this perfectly. So just keep that in mind, that they're not looking to grade you on your performance to that level. 
And, and what about the people, because not only has this been a learning curve for people applying for jobs and doing the interview that way, but it's also been different for people doing the interviewing. What about uh, what, what people need to be uh, focusing on or need to be aware of when you're the one that's actually conducting the interview? You're focusing on many of the same things because you're right. I mean, most people certainly were not used to uh, doing interviews virtually. So you're looking for the same thing. Are you looking or are you seeing sustained eye contact? Are you seeing interest in the person's face? Are you seeing evidence that they have prepared for the interview and that they are really interested in the interview? if they're looking away, if they're if they're fidgeting, if they are constantly looking down and reading something, they're either unprepared or they are uninterested. Either one doesn't work. Right. So so going both ways then, I, I guess, too, in that how you read body language in person, it's now reading it through a screen, but it is still there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just that it's more concentrated from the neck up. Right? You don't see too much else. So, yeah, you are still looking at the body language, and and um, it's that much more important, the facial expression and the, the level of interest that you are showing and your ability to listen to the person on the other end as well. That will come through. Uh, so it, it sounds like then uh, agreement that even if people, I, I know some people love the Zoom interview format, others really find it difficult compared to being in person, would rather be in person, feel they make a better impression that way. It sounds like in some scenarios, in some cases, that is going to continue. It's not something that's going away anytime soon. I agree. You know, we have people working remotely. That has opened up the opportunity for people who don't even live within commuting distance to be considered for jobs. So they're going to be interviewed um, virtually as well. So, yeah, I think that it is going to continue and um, we're just going to have to get better at it. All right. Uh, Some uh, homework for people maybe that are (laughs) about to do an interview or being on the other side of the interview as well. Janet, thanks so much. Great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us on this BC Day. Well, a West Kelowna man with criminal ties has survived a second attempt on his life within a six-month period. This, according to our CMP, 37-year-old Kyle Giannis has been treated for non-life-threatening injuries after a shooting that took place outside of a restaurant on Saturday evening. Our CMP in this case explained why they took a step they don't normally take in investigations. That step releasing the man's name. Releasing the name of the victim is a step that we don't take very lightly. Uh, In this instance, uh, just given uh, the history of Mr. Giannis, as well as the fact that uh, he was the victim of a shooting several months ago in the Kelowna area, and the fact that uh, we still haven't uh, been able to effect an arrest on that initial shooting and this new one, uh, we do believe uh, that because of his criminal activity and his associates, he poses a real and pressing threat to our community in general. So we made the decision to release his name as an effort to ensure public safety. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Surrey gentleman uh, that was the second victim in this shooting uh, doesn't meet that threshold. So at this time, we're not releasing his name. Let's bring in Doug Spencer, gang expert, also retired from the Vancouver Police Department. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. 
You're more than welcome, Joe. What are your thoughts on what we've heard about how this went down in Kelowna? Well, Kyle's past is catching up to him, right? When you choose to get into that world of drugs and gangs and stuff, you develop enemies. And, you know, ripping off one another and the, the whole back and forth thing. So, you know, they they figure it's years later, it's it's all gone away. They turn the page. They Those guys have large memories. And um, if they want to get you, they want to finish off what you started years ago, they will. Except in this case, this was the second shooting attempt, the second attempt on his life within a six-month period. Are you surprised at all that he was out there in the open at this restaurant in a position where it looked like he was a pretty easy target? Yeah, um, you know, he's not taking the right precautions for sure. Like with the enemies from his past, you got to move. You can't be on social media, which is where I noticed just uh, by a mistake, really, looking at other stuff, I saw his business thing in Kelowna. So right away, I contacted the gang unit in Vancouver, and they subsequently told Kelowna, you know, just so you know, he's up there, which, you know, Kelowna quite likely already knows. But, um, yeah, if you're next to those guys, uh, those bullets, have, they have no names on them. So they start shooting bullets. You could go down, too. Which we've been told before, too, that if you're in a public place, if you are able to see or you notice that there maybe are gang members around that, like you said, if you're sitting on a patio or something or at a restaurant, you, too, could be an unintended target. Oh, no, for sure. You know, uh, the shooting in Cordero's there, you know, that's a, a fancy, nice establishment. It's not the business's fault, but these guys love to come and spend their money and flash all their their jewelry and stuff. So they'll come in frequent. And if you're sitting in there and you see some guys and you can overhear their conversations and stuff, I would get out of there, right? Because you just don't know when it's going to happen. So do you think the two shootings then targeting Kyle Giannis, is is this an example of whoever's doing the shooting isn't that good and that's why they missed? Or do gang members do this to send a message? Yeah, no, they obviously they're trying to kill him. But, you know, they quite often they don't want to do it themselves, right? They don't want to be the one to go to jail. So they get these young little recruits that they found wherever and they throw a gun in their hand and say, go kill the guy. Well, they're not professional killers. They're nervous young kids that drive by at a high rate of speed and pull the trigger a number of times or whatever happens, right? If they're professional killers, he's dead, right? Mm. So, I think I had seen a quote, or you had said that uh, Kyle Giannis was known as an enforcer. What does that mean? Well, he's a big, muscular guy. He collects drug debts and runs drug lines and stuff. He was associated to the, the DAC group, which is, you know pretty much uh, both the Dax and their cousin and everybody are wiped out. It's the same old story, right? If you get in in uh, opposition of these other guys, you're fighting over basically addicts to buy your drugs. And if people step in there and take away your livelihood and your business, you're going to have trouble. And the, the way they settle it, they don't sit down and negotiate. They'll come and wipe you out. They'll kill you, right? They're trying to protect what's theirs. 
So at this point, with these two attempts on him, do you think, I mean, it seems like that would be unfinished business and that he would still be, his life would still be at risk. Oh, it was certainly when I heard that Kyle's coming back up from his uh, stint down in jail in the States, um, I knew there'd be trouble. You just know when those guys hit the street, you got a guy like Jonathan Bacon getting out soon or out now, who knows. When they hit the street, it's payback. All these guys that they have stepped on on their way up the food chain, they want revenge and they're going to come and get it, right? You push them around, they have to push back. If, if you let them walk over you, everybody will walk over you. During this investigation, we also heard from Kelowna RCMP saying while they were at the scene of this latest shooting, some officers that were investigating found an undetonated improvised explosive device. That doesn't happen all of the time. How would you explain that? Yeah, they're pretty serious about taking care of business, right? When you start using explosives and stuff. We've had cases uh, in Vancouver. We had one where this gang member associated to, associated to Billy Tran, uh, they sh- shot at him. And when we went to tow the car, we noticed there's a hand grenade hanging from a string under the car. So the, when the hand grenade fell off the body, it pulled the pin, It was supposed, but the pin bent. So the grenade didn't go off or he would have been dead, right? Mm. These guys don't mess around. They want to kill you. They're going to kill you. What is it about Kelowna, do you think, that is attractive, I guess, to gang members? Or why are we seeing so much of this violence in Kelowna? Well, it's a nice place for people to come up. The weather, you got boats and all the lakes and stuff. And it's kind of a a midway point for the Saskatchewan, Alberta gangsters. We'll come, hey, let's meet in Kelowna. They do their drug deals and stuff you know, flash around in their boats or whatever, like happened 10 years ago now at the casino. They come in in this big cigarette boat, and they basically advertise to their enemies, hey, we're up here at the casino, come and get us, right? It's just stupidity. They're going to die. You can't be like that out in the public when you have all these enemies. They're going to come and get you when they find you, and wherever that may be. At this particular individual, though, too, when we're talking about, I know we've been talking about the fact there have been two shootings in the past six months. I know Kim Bolin has written about this in the Vancouver Sun extensively. I mean, he also survived an attempted hit in 2017, in 2018, connected to the wrongful shooting of a man in Surrey. I mean, this guy's history is certainly, I mean, it's well known, it seems, and, and frightening. Yeah, I mean, these guys, they're, I call them Facebook gang, the gangsters in the lower mainland of BC. They got Facebook and they post pictures of themselves with their tattoos and stuff. Their egos are just out of this world, right? They they have to stroke their ego to make them feel important and stuff. So if you're going to advertise, you're a big tough guy. And here's my picture and here's who I hang out with. This is the car I drive. They're going to get you, right? Mm-hmm. The clock's ticking, and they've obviously they've tried, I think, three times with Kyle. Um, they're going to get him. Which I would imagine, too, then, is, is not all that comforting for anybody. Like you said, if you happen to be in Kelowna or you're out and about and you get caught up in this, you happen to be in the same area. 
Yeah, no, exactly. You know, the shooting at the casino, I saw that videotape. I'm actually given some evidence and a lawsuit coming up. But, you know, to watch that video is frightening. This poor mom with pushing a baby carriage with her child right in the line of fire. That is just reckless, right? Look what happened back east when they blew up that Jeep and between the fight between the Hells Angels and the Rock Machine. That poor young kid, was innocent kid, was killed. So what happens? They put a police force together, 200 men, and they pretty much wiped those guys out back east now. So, you know, if you're going to recklessly run around shooting, get prepared to pay the consequences, right? More police power, more police officers in the street, and they're going to come and get you. They're obliged. That's what we're there to do is protect the public. In this case, I know at this point there haven't been any arrests. I know RCMP and Kelowna have been asking uh, people with information to come forward if people saw anything or heard anything. How do you? Is it boots on the ground? Is it making sure there there are more officers investigating? Or how do you stop something like this? Well, the the biggest obstacle in all these gang shootings, and I've investigated thousands, is the your witnesses which are crucial, are usually friends of the either dead or shot gangster. They care less about them, especially if they die. They're not going to go testify in court and put their life at risk for this guy, right? So that's the issue, the the roadblock the the police have to get through to get witnesses cooperating and on board to come and testify to what happened because the police weren't there. Right. You can get some physical evidence. You find weapons, cartridges, fingerprints, but you need witnesses to solve those cases. So, you know, therein lies the uh, issue. Right, because I would imagine it's, that would be one of the most difficult parts of the investigation is, is a witness that's actually tied to these groups. Where's the incentive or where, what would the reasoning be that would what would entice somebody to do that? Yeah, usually in my experience, when your witness is also at risk, so it could cost them their lives, then they'll step up to the plate and testify just to get their enemies in jail and make themselves safe. That, that's about the only time you're going to get them to come forward. They, they, you know, this old saying in gangs, I've got your back. It's the absolute polar opposite of that. They don't care unless there's something in it for them or their safety. And given your expertise on this, when we're talking about somebody, and again, uh, Kyle Giannis, who uh, the latest attempts on his life within a six-month period, he was treated for non-life-threatening injuries, uh, likely to be released back into the same community. Uh, Do we expect then that we're going to see another shooting within the next few months? Yeah, when the opportunity knocks, these guys will go and get them, wherever that may be, right? The, The... shooting at the casino it just happened somebody saw the boat and phone calls were made and these guys came up from vancouver and shot the bacon and amaro and those guys right the opportunity knocked so it's hard to find them when they're hiding but when you're out in the public and somebody gets spots you phone calls are made and they'll come and get you 
Well, depending where you are, you may have noticed some smoky skies. Maybe you've noticed that smell of smoke in the air or you've had some trouble breathing. The air quality warning has been issued for Metro Vancouver. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Ken Reed, Metro Vancouver <laughs> Superintendent of Environmental Sampling and Monitoring. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Oh, thank you for having me on, Jill. What does it mean when we have the air quality warning? What exactly does that mean as far as what it is we're breathing in? Yeah, so we've issued the air quality advisory uh, because we're expecting that there will be some high uh, concentrations of fine particulate matter in the air. And the source of the fine particulate matter is the wildfires that are burning in the interior of BC and in Washington as well. So with the, the change in the weather over the last couple of days, we've seen what has been pushing the smoke from those fires uh, to the east, start to bring it out towards the coast and out towards our region. So we do have a large network of air quality monitoring stations, uh, both in Metro Vancouver and in the Fraser Valley Regional District to the east. So we're able to pick this up now, and we're certainly seeing uh, some elevated uh, concentrations uh, for PM2.5 as a fine particulate matter now. And is that different or is it anything to be more concerned about when we look at there was the air quality advisory that was related to the hot weather and then shifting to this new advisory because of wildfire smoke? Is is that more concerning or can we compare the two? I, I think uh, they both have health impacts um, and they largely are impacting uh, the same people. So I think a lot of the same messages that we would put out there around health and, and, and how people can reduce their exposure is applicable for both situations. And you're referring to uh, ground-level ozone that we had during the uh, very hot temperatures in June. One of, one of the benefits that we have right now is that temperatures are not nearly as hot as they were back then. And what is the advice then for people if you're being, uh, if you are outdoors for any reason, maybe you work outdoors, or even if you say can't avoid being outdoors for at least some period of time? Yeah, so I should point out that, uh, it, you know, it depends a little bit on where you are. So we've issued the air quality advisory for all of the region. Um, but right now we are seeing relatively good air quality in parts of the region to the west, so uh, closer to the closer to the coast. Uh, if you're in the eastern part of the valley, uh, say east of Abbotsford, that's where we've seen the higher concentrations over the last day or so. Uh, so certainly people in that region uh, will want to think about uh, the activities that they're doing outdoor. And so postponing or reducing outdoor physical activity is one of the recommendations uh, that the health authorities are uh, providing us. Uh, and, you know, certainly at times like this, if you can reduce the exposure to other air quality sources, uh, then that's a good measure to take. So, you know, busy roads, uh, heavy vehicle traffic, if you can stay away from those areas, that might be helpful for people who are susceptible uh, to the impacts of uh, fine particulate matter at this time. I'm glad you mentioned that, that it's, it depends on where you are in the region and the different areas, because I know a lot of people got up this morning and thought uh, it looked a lot better that they, in, on the coastal region that yesterday where there, there did feel like that smoke was coming in and it was a bit smoky and heavier. It did seem like today it had cleared a bit. Yeah, so certainly yesterday we did see, you know, high concentrations for short times throughout the entire region. Part of the complication here is that there is smoke above us as well. 
Um, so we say there's smoke aloft, and that can create uh, the hazy conditions as well, but it's above what we're breathing. So there is certainly some risk that, that smoke aloft will come down to the surface, but it's uh, it's very difficult to predict. So the, be- the best thing for people to do is to, is to take a look at our air map, and they can see what the air quality health index is within their region. All right. How do you actually measure when when you find out how much particulate is in the air? How are you able to do that and to know what region is the worst and how much particulate there's actually there? Yeah, so we're measuring uh, with, with instruments that are located in our air quality monitoring stations and uh, they're 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 quite precise um, and expensive instruments. So we have a great deal of confidence in the measurements from them. Uh, I can connect to those here at our head office in Burnaby directly. So up to the minute, uh, we know what's going on throughout the entire region. And when we look at the the wildfire smoke, as you talked about, that we've seen the smoke coming in and that smoke aloft, is it the the fires in BC? Is it the fires in Washington State? Do we know which ones are, are causing the biggest threat to our air quality? Yeah, well, it's it's the two that you mentioned uh, primarily, uh, the BC Interior fires and, and Washington State. Um, but there are fires burning in Oregon as well. So there's a chance that some of the smoke aloft is coming from Oregon fires as well. But the, the BC ones are, are closest to our region, uh, and there's many of them. So uh, it, it, it doesn't take a big change in the weather to start bringing that potentially into the lower mainland at, at much higher concentrations than we're seeing right now. And we've been fortunate this summer where we've seen the smoke going to the east and into Alberta from the BC wildfires. But, uh, you know, we're, we're prepared for uh, if it should come into our region um, at, at greater uh, concentrations than we're observing right now. And that would be caused something just uh, something as simple as a, a shift in the wind direction? Yeah, it, yeah, a change in the weather uh, could bring that. Uh, or, you know, wildfire behavior may change. We may see more wildfires in the coastal region uh, rather than just the interior areas. There is some good news in that there is some precipitation forecast later this week. So that might might help the wildfire risk. Um, but, you know, we need quite a bit of precipitation to change that in any appreciable way. Uh, that was going to be my next question with with that rain in the forecast. And I think, for yeah, like you said, for later on this week, something I know a lot of people are looking forward to. But will that make a big of a, a big difference or is that what? what helps us get rid of the particulate in the air? Yeah, so the rain can help uh, wash the particulate out of the air as well. But I think the bigger issue here is is how much precipitation are we going to get and how is that going to change the wildfire risk in the province? And do we know then, apart from the precipitation expected later this week, uh, is it too difficult to kind of forecast or try and forecast since it is so dependent on what happens with the wildfires and if new wildfires are sparked and with the temperature, are we able to kind of see an end to this or do we know when the advisory might be lifted or how long of a time period we're looking at that we're going to be dealing with this? Yeah, so for the advisory that we're in right now, we're expecting that it will be in place for another day. There are onshore winds forecast for tomorrow, which we expect will start to clear the smoke out. That might take a day or so. Um, But in terms of wildfire risk and and the risk of wildfire smoke uh, for the rest of the summer, I mean, the wildfire season goes into September. Uh, 
traditionally or historically. So certainly we're expecting uh, that the wildfire season will continue and that we'll potentially be under risk for some time still. All right. Ken Reed, thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this today uh, and letting people know about the air quality and what to expect. Appreciate your time. Okay, you're welcome.